You're listening to the Joelle Martin Mastery Podcast, home of the two-hour deep dive interview with gold, platinum, and multi-platinum bands, including Stained, Blue Rodeo, The Arkells, Finger Eleven, Big Wreck, Moist, Bedouin Soundclash, I Mother Earth, Ill Scarlet, Neverending White Lights, Thornley, and many more. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast as well as share, comment, and like. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We are joined by a very special guest. He's achieved a level of mastery as a vocalist, as a guitarist, and as a songwriter for the platinum-selling band Trouble Charger. So welcome to the podcast, making his triumphant return, Bill Priddle. Bill, how are you? And, and how's the new music coming along? You sent me some demos a few months ago. They sounded awesome. And I'm excited. I want to know when I can get my hands on this stuff. Uh, I'm hoping we're going to have something. We have a couple shows in June in Toronto and Hamilton. Uh, so we're hoping to have at least one song done at that point. Um, we're, uh, we're playing with Rusty and Lightmare is a band that, uh, that, uh, I produced and they, they're from Sudbury and they know Ken from Rusty. So it's, it should be a really cool bill. It's a, a garrison, uh, Friday, June 15th, I believe. When it when it is. Uh June 16th. June and 16th. Then, and then another venue in Hamilton on the 17th. That's exciting. And do you do you see it when you have new music and you're going to play live? Do you see the live performance as a way to flesh out those songs to test them out on a crowd, or are they basically done and it's your more just showcasing? Uh well. I'm really taking my time with this thing. So we've done about eight or nine shows with most of these songs. So yeah, I don't, I don't really subscribe to the live testing thing. I don't, I don't look to any audience other than my own ears. Really. When I make music, I've, I've learned that's the best way to do things. And that's, that's the way that people that I love do things. I mean, all, all the people on my list are, <laughs> they, they didn't go out to make radio hits. That's very true. Yeah. It's different than uh, comedians. I'm a big fan of standup comedians and they say they essentially can't write without an audience. Cause you have to see, you know, the, the, the laughter is such an important part of the set that until you test it, you know, see what sticks against the wall. You, you don't know if you're doing well or not. So it's very different, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I've done, you know, I've done lots of gigs as cover bands and solo gigs where people pay no attention. So I got to pay no attention to them. It was just a month ago where I was, I finished a set with my cover band. We were killing it and, and there was nothing. And, and between sets, I was saying to the guys, you know, if, I feel like people are, if only they could, if only there are a way to like non-verbally express that you like the band, some sort of rhythmic I, I don't know what some it's too much to ask for something like know? that yeah that stuff I uh in the last few months I've been playing open mics in Ottawa just just for fun and it's you know I'm on stage I'm looking out and out of I don't know say there's 50 people there's literally one face looking back at me everyone else is facing the other way and you're like why am I even playing you know nobody cares sometimes there's faces looking at me and then they don't clap I guess that's worse yeah <laughs> that's too sure that's too funny so the cover band uh, is that uh all the tired horses that you're talking about yes it is yeah okay so 
there's they're different shows in Sault Ste. Marie, right? Yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, we have listeners, you know, mo- mostly in Canada, mostly in Ontario. Uh, if there is anyone within driving distance of Sault Ste. Marie, is this like a once a month thing or? Uh, yeah, we have a residency at a place called the Whiskey Barrel. It's the second Saturday of every month. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So for our listeners that are just tuning in, and this is the first time that they there, there's a Bill Prittle interview with me, uh, just to let them know that we did a full deep dive interview back in August of 2022. This was on episode 71. Two hours, we went through your whole life, your career, discography. So uh, for anyone that missed that, go back, get the whole life story. And then here, this is a part of a new series called My Five Favorite Albums, where the most popular musical guests from the past, they come back and we just nerd out on all time great music. So that's what we're going to do here today. And I just want to point out that uh, I'm going on 100 interviews now. We're going to hit that number in, in the next few episodes. And with 100 interviews, yours is still in the top 10 most downloaded uh, on, on Spotify, Apple and Google. So you are a fan favorite. Thanks. So when I started this new series, I said, we got to get Bill back and, and here you are. So to, to, to show the, the fan love that we have, I'm going to start with a, a fan question that's sent in. And uh, this is from Andrew Melford. And he says, Bill is my favorite non-Rush affiliated musician of all time. You got to have a caveat with Rush, right? There's, you just have to assume everyone loves Rush. Uh, he says, I- I'm so jealous you're getting to interview him again. I have a million questions for him, but I don't want to take over the whole interview. If I had to pick just one, I'd ask what the future holds for him. Any more music being released? Is Trouble Charger still active in any extent? Will their first two albums ever become available to listen to in the U.S. on Spotify? I guess it's not uh, in the U.S., uh, he says, I'm desperate to listen to them. And then he says, really, just let them know that his music has literally changed my life. I even named my own band Detox after the Trouble Charger album. So that's from Andrew Melford. Those are some kind words. Yep. That is pretty sweet. So lots of questions in there. I guess the three, uh, is there new music on the way? So we talked about that a little yep. bit. And I guess, were, were you aware that the Trouble Charger isn't on Spotify in the US? I listen to Trouble Charger, uh, but I'm in Canada, so I don't know. No, I didn't. I think we're, we're it, there's a possibility we might uh, reissue uh, uh, Self Equals Title, so that might come with a digital release at all, uh, as well. Um, I think we're, 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 we're trying to release it on vinyl, um, but that's, that's just in early stages, uh, so I hope that goes through. Okay, sounds good. And the last thing before we dive into your five favorite albums, uh, I just wanted to point out uh, on the wall of fame behind me. So these are my 12 favorite albums from artists that have been on the podcast. In your honor up here, we have the album. Uh, So that is there with some other incredible albums, uh, just just to honor you. So let's dive into the five favorite albums. And we're going to change it up a little bit. Normally, we up front, say these are the five favorite albums. We do a deep dive into those. And at the end, the guests are such music lovers that they can't get by on just five albums. They have to have an honorable mentions list. Uh, we're we're going to do it different. We're going to start with your honor, honorable mentions list, and then we're going to go into the, the top five. So do you want to list off some of these great albums? Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, first off, I want to say this is much more fun than me for me than talking about myself. <laughs> um. I have so many honorable mentions. I'm going to start with the obvious ones, uh, the ones that come up on critics' 
lists all the time. So Velvet Underground and Nico, uh, Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street, um, uh, Beach Boys, Pet Sounds, Beatles, White Album or Double Album or The Beatles, uh, uh, Van Morrison, Astral Weeks. These are all, there's a reason they're on critics list all the time. They're pretty much flawless front to back. I mean, Velvet Underground's a little unlistable, but it's also like smashing through <laughs> reality, time, space. And I describe it as 50s music from outer space. And very influential, right? It changed everything. Very, very influential, yeah. Uh, the next tier is albums that I love that are, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Sonic Youth Washing Machine, uh, Television Marky Moon, Cheap Trick Heaven Tonight, uh, Big Star, Pick One, Number One Record, Radio City, even the third one is great. Uh, the Strokes, Is This It? That's Another a newer record. one on your list, yeah. Flaw flawless record, front to back. Um, REM Out of Time, out of, REM Automatic for the People, rem reckoning <laughs> rem fan okay uh yeah rem they're, they're as influential as as the velvet underground you know you if you take away you know rem then thousands of bands disappear like the photos in back to the future the rem basically gave permission to for bands to sign to a major label without feeling like they're selling out. Like, I don't think you have Nirvana going from the indie label to never mind major label if you don't have the influence of REM in there. Yeah. Uh, Stereo Lab, Dots and Loops. Uh, Stereo Lab was one of my favorite albums in the 90s. It consistently put out great albums. Um, <clears throat> these two albums, I, I always think of them as a pair. Flaming Lips, Soft Bulletin, and spiritualized ladies and gentlemen we are floating in space these are 90s records that everyone loved you know metal guys would rave about spiritualized they were just everything came together for these bands and they're they're just amazing sounding records with amazing songs um why are chairs missing and then the next category would be bands, albums that I really wanted to make be on the top five. And it was really hard to cross them off. Uh, the Kinks, We Are the Village Green Preservation Society. Again, flawless front to back. Sounds, 1967, it sounds like it was recorded between, I don't know, 1980 and 1995. Uh, the Velvet Underground, the third album. You know, the Velvet Underground were awesome at shooting themselves in the foot. So the first album was bizarre. The second album was, people call them unlistenable. Uh, the engineer famously said, if this, if this is what you guys are going to do, this button presses record, I'm out of here. I'm not going to listen to this. Uh, pavement, wowie, zowie. Pavement. I'm going to talk more about them in the Steely Dan section, but Again, a flawless record, beautifully sequenced, sprawling, expansive. Uh, Joni Mitchell, Hey Jira, just like 
sacred music, really. Um, Neil Young, Tonight's the Night, kind of like the Neil Young uh, aficionado's favorite album. It's just, they didn't want to, the record company said, made him shelve it for three years because it was too raw and, and uncompromising. It's just an amazing listen all the way through. And uh, and let it be by the replacements. Just like a masterpiece of, I don't know. <laughs> so those those are my honorable mentions. Wow, you you uh, you might have put more time into that list than anybody uh, in this series so far. I, I know you were squirming uh, just trying to come up with your top five. So I know you you actually put some thought into it and took some time. I'll I'll have to go back um, and, and check out this part of the episode to write out that list and and check out those albums. Well, I thought a lot about about the criteria for this list, and my criteria are. It's got to be something that floored me when I when I listened to it first and still floors me now. And that's kind of the big criteria. Um, and then the other criteria was like it had to be super solid from front to back. No, no duds. Um, it had to be very influential in, in, in how I think musically. And yeah. Okay. When, when I was in, so I was in Toronto for 11 years and they would have free concerts, um, at, uh, at, at the Eaton center, I guess Dundas square, they'd have free concerts every now and then. And they, there was a free flaming lips concert that I went to, which is insane. So I got to see the flaming lips where, uh, the singer goes out in that ball and floats over the crowd. Like he's an alien. Uh, pretty amazing there, man, their song. Do you realize that has to be like one of the greatest songs of all time. It's yeah. such an incredible song, man. The lyrics, they'll get you. Yeah, there's a similar. That's the album after the one I mentioned. There's a similar song uh, called "Feeling Yourself Disintegrate," and it's similarly about about love and death. And so, it's incredibly concise. So the album you chose, it was Soft Bulletin. Yeah. So the the album would do you realize it's something like Yoshimi battles the robots or something? That's correct. Yeah, they're such a unique band, eh? There's just nobody yeah. like them. It's it's good they got the commercial breakthrough. It it seems like they've kind of always done well on the live front. Like people know that you go to the show yeah. and you're getting something incredible, and it's it's nice to see that they get you know the critical acclaim and then the actual album sales as well, breaking through with some big singles. Yeah. Yeah, man, they're they're they're. I don't know when the last time they put an put out an album was, but I, I I keep seeing every few years I see new albums, so they're still doing the damn thing. Yep. All right, so we got uh, your your five fave albums. You came down to. Do you want to list the five? I have them in front of me. If you want me to list them, up to you. Uh, yeah. Why don't you list them? All right. So we have Bob Dylan, Highway sixty one revisited, Steely Dan, The Royal Scam. Guided by Voices, Alien Lanes, Joe Walsh, The Smoker You Drink, The Player You Get, and Talking Heads, Fear of Music. Uh, so looking at those five albums, how much do you think they influenced you as a singer, as a guitarist, as a songwriter? Um, I, I would think their, their, their influence is kind of subconscious at this point um 
I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to be influenced by Dylan because it's he's so untouchable. You can't you can't go. I'm going to write a Bob Dylan style song. It'll be great. True. Um, it's more. I I don't know. It's it's funny. People when I talk about music with people, they sometimes say, "Oh well, you know, I'm cheating or or it's different for you. You're a musician." And I kind of take offense to that because I consider myself maybe even foremost a, a listener. Like I love listening to music and it doesn't always need to have anything to do with my ability to play guitar or sing or, or you know, I mean, I think one of the things that makes me a good producer is just I've listened to so much music. I've, I've obsessed over it so much that I, that I understand how songs work and, and it, it kind of comes natural to me. Um, so for me, the, the albums, they just, you know, they put you in a state of mind and, and it's more, yeah, I don't see any kind of like, oh, if it weren't for this, I never would have written this song. Although on my solo album, Prittle Concern, I had this little fade out thing. I stole that from a Joe Walsh album, not this album, but yeah, things like that. I, I like having references like that. Yeah, so let's uh, let's just dive right into the first album. Right. So, so we have Bob Dylan, Highway sixty one revisited. This comes out in nineteen sixty five. You know, Bob Dylan, one of the greatest artists of all time. He, just in his discography, he's released four or five of the all time great albums. Uh, so, why specifically yeah. this album out of his amazing discography? I mean, it, you could you could easily choose three, four, or five other ones, and and they they hold yeah. Up. I mean, Blonde on Blonde. Uh, Blood on the Tracks, uh, Time Out of Mind, 1977. I still say the greatest comeback album of all time. To me, that album is it's as if Wayne Gretzky came out of retirement this season and scored 100 goals. Um, I think everything came together on Highway 61. Uh, bring, it, bring It All Back Home, the previous album, was the first electric album, but the the acoustic side was better than the electric side this was all electric it i read a thing about a uh, i uh, uh, read a quote by phil ramone who produced blood on the tracks and he said he said yeah the thing about claiming to produce bob dylan you don't really produce bob dylan like producing bob dylan means you press record all the time cuz you just dylan doesn't care he just he gets in the studio he sings his songs it doesn't matter who's with him he he changed the but they've got to be good because he's going to change everything he's gonna like oh i'm gonna wait four bars instead of two bars between these verses and you got to be on your toes um he's i read this amazing thing about his his gospel period he made uh, a slow train coming and then he made two more records. So the, the next record I believe was shot of love, same producer, same musician, same studio, but shot of love sounds terrible. Uh, slow train coming sounds amazing. It sounds like a Steely Dan album. Apparently he went to the mixing and said, what are you doing? And the producer said, well, we're, we're mixing. And he said, why does it sound so clean? The producer said, well, that's what we do. We clean up the tracks, we make them nicer, and then we mix it. He said, well, what did you play me last week? He said, those were the rough mixes. That's what I want. And that's what he went with. No one does that. 
So this was, like you said, released August 30th, 1965. The, the sessions ended on like August 25th. Uh, it's just, you don't have to, you know, obviously I wasn't around in 1965 to hear this when it was released, but it doesn't matter when you listen to this, you can hear that it's going somewhere that no one's ever gone before. There's a sense of, there's a sense of chaos in so many songs, like it's something's about to blow up and, and sometimes you, you, you think it would be a sort of unbearable ecstasy to be one of the session players because you, you, you're doing something so amazing and you're only going to get two or three takes or one take and, and, and you, you better make it, make it count. And they, they all count. I mean, I've done, I'm, I inside of, I've, I've regularly covered six of these songs um, and they just, the sonic space is unbelievable song like just like tom thumbs blues it's got it's got in the center slightly left it's got this electric guitar played by mike bloomfield on the left is a is a vibrato hoffner electric piano and on the right is is what's called a tack piano when you put things on the piano strings to be it's like a like a old barrel house western and the and it all comes together in this beautiful, it starts, and then the snare hits and it's the snare sound on the entire record is just like the sound of God. It's just, I think it's in 1965, it was hard to go into a, a good studio and make something bad. All the gear was great. All the, I think that was kind of the peak of the, you know, you weren't, people weren't really messing with things. They were just trying to document things, but it got to the point where you were, it was more than just a document. And, and it was before when you were like deliberately trying to mess with things and, and start doing effects. And so I don't know what it, it just all, it, you know, it's like people say about recording Dylan, it's, it's catching lightning in a bottle. It's just capturing magic and, and, trying to get like a kind of a an audio timestamp of of the performance essentially yeah. instead of all the editing and manipulating later on that we do here with technology and and this was and maybe that the sound of chaos comes from the fact that this dylan was this was his third album in 18 months he'd been on the, the road constantly he was probably doing way too much amphetamine probably drinking too much and smoking tons of weed and you know he 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 basically took himself out after this album. It was, it was too much and you, you can hear it. it, but at the same time, he's just at the top of his form. And which brings me to the next thing, you know, I don't know which I, what I hate worse when, when people, if, if you're a, a musician or a music lover, you can't say, no, I don't like Bob Dylan. You, you just, you can't, you can't do it. Uh, so I don't know what's worth people, people that say, oh, I can't stand Bob Dylan or people that say, oh, I respect him and he's a great writer, but I can't listen to his voice. You listen to the beginning of Desolation Row and you tell me this guy can't sing. I think it was Jeff Tweedy from Wilco that said, you'll never find a singer who thinks Bob Dylan is a bad singer. I mean, wow. there, there's, 
it's it's hard to it's hard to to overestimate Bob Dylan. I would say calling him the greatest songwriter in history is underselling him a bit. And and calling him a great lyric writer, you know, he's got a chip on his shoulder about that, and he should, because it it means oh, so I so I I can't sing, I can't, I can't, uh, I'm I'm not a melodicist, I, I can't write songs, I'm just good for words. I mean, his phrasing wise, his peers are Miles Davis and Frank Sinatra. He's I, I without irony, I call him the greatest singer of our generation. Yeah, it's I think I've heard uh, Dave Grohl say that if you if you have a voice, the the, the most important thing is that you have something to say and that you're unique and, and, and distinct. So with Bob Dylan, it's like, no, he doesn't have, you know, like the the typical, beautiful, like Mariah Carey voice or whatever. But it's like he has the voice he was given and, you know, it's Bob Dylan and he uses it masterfully for for what it is and for his craft. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's, it's, you know, things don't exist in a vacuum. You know, you put together amazing lyrics, amazing songs, amazing band, amazing equipment and an amazing singer. You're going to come up with highway 61. You, you were saying that he's, he's quite possibly the greatest songwriter of all time. Uh, if he is not the greatest songwriter of all time, who who's in the running? I guess it would be Lennon McCartney, um, maybe Neil Young. Like who's, who's in the Mount Rushmore with, uh, uh, with Bob Dylan? Uh, Chris Christopherson, I would say. Um, Leonard Cohen. It, de- it depends. You know, the, some, some are great lyricists, some are great, you know, you know, Sting is a great melodicist, but that that's that's about it. Um, you know, McCartney is a great melodicist. Mm-hmm. Dylan's Dylan's the whole package. Do you do you remember the first time that you really got into Bob Dylan's music? I mean, the music was out there, but at, at what point did it really stand out to you? Yeah, I didn't hear much of it at all growing up. Uh, I was introduced to it by a f- uh, the first friend I made in first year university in, in at Queens and Kingston, and it was probably Greatest Hits Volume Two. Um, and then I, from there, I just got into a wormhole. My friend had a lot of the. I don't think I I heard Highway sixty one at that point. I was mostly into the early acoustic ones. And the the thing I remember most often, I was going to ask you earlier, cussing is okay, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I got asked that last interview. Hey, if you need to cuss to properly get across the emotions that, you know, go, go, go ahead. So I remember so vividly listening to something from, let's say, Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll from Times Are Changing and lifting the needle going, what the fuck did he just say? I have to hear that again. What is, is that? Can that be what he said? It was just so different or shocking so or beautiful and, and, you know, arresting. So for our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with that album yet, that's the best part of this whole series is people going out and, and getting five great albums at a time to dive into. Uh, so the four singles were like a Rolling Stone, which is 
the Bob Dylan song everyone knows from a Buick six highway 61 revisited and queen Jane approximately. Um, yeah, this this album, it's it's one of the most acclaimed albums of all time. There's the famous Rolling Stone list, 500 greatest albums of all time. Uh, this is at number four, like of all the all the albums in human history. It's in the top five to to show just how incredible it is. Yeah, it's yeah. And I, I mean, you know, the calling song singles is kind of irrelevant to me. The, and they're just all so incredible in their own way desolation row i don't that's the final song right and it's like 11 minutes minutes uh dylan's playing an acoustic guitar someone else is playing acoustic guitar fills perfectly Uh, the harmonica solo at the end is like stupidly too loud but you wouldn't want it any less loud it it just kind of makes your head explode it's kind of this you just sings and sings and sings and then the the harmonic is this incredible release valve that just blows the top of your head off uh from a buick six just has this that that chaotic sound i was it just sounds like it's falling apart uh al cooper's doing this this organ fill that just keeps repeating and repeating Mm -hmm. and repeating it it just and, and and it's it's funny too uh uh What's, what's the line in Buick six? Uh, she don't make me nervous. She don't talk too much. She walks like Bo Diddley and she don't need no crutch. She keeps this 410 all loaded with lead. I think Thanks. when I, when I was thinking about these five albums, there's a sense of humor running through all of them. I was going to say that with, uh, it was either Steely Dan or the, uh, let's see, what are the other, the Joe Walsh, one of those two had some comedy stuff going on in there, or at least a sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, but but also a, a deadly serious at the same time, which I think is a lot of what I lo- love about music. I love that Bob Dylan isn't in a rush, you know, like songs, songs like... Yeah. Uh, like Rolling Stone and uh, Desolation Row, it's like he it's going to take as long as it needs to take to get his point across. Yeah. Well, and the, and, the, and that's the thing when you when you have these when you move from like three verses in a bridge to like six verses, seven verses, eight verses, they're constructed so well. Bob Dylan's a great storyteller uh, and you start to see patterns. And, and you know, the finishing it's always the the most intense lines in the in the finishing verse yeah let me let me know if i'm incorrect with the following statement but my understanding is before bob dylan lyrics and music were like you know uh tutti frutti all a rudy like like they meant nothing it was just a you know something had to come out there was a melody and here's a few words and it's like I don't know. We dance to this and it feels good. And my understanding is Bob Dylan is where it's like lyrics became actual, you know, of the utmost importance and, and telling a story. And, you know, he becomes a voice of a generation because there's something worth yeah. saying. Is that accurate or am I? Off? I think that's, that's quite accurate. Uh, David Crosby said when they, the birds first sing, one of their first singles was Mr. Tambourine man. And he said that was the first time poetry was on the radio. Wow. 
Okay. I, I have a story here. You mentioned that Bob Dylan, he was just touring constantly. He just putting out so many albums that he was kind of burning out. So there's a quick story about him getting burnt out just before uh, the writing of like a Rolling Stone. I thought you would enjoy. So it, uh, it says here in May of 1965, Dylan returned from his tour of England, feeling exhausted and dissatisfied with his material. He told journalist Nat Hentoff, I was going to quit singing. I was very drained. It's very tiring having other people tell you how much they dig you if you don't dig yourself. Then he says, as a consequence of his dissatisfaction, Dylan wrote 20 pages of verse he later described as a long piece of vomit. He reduced this to a song with four verses and a chorus, which became like a rolling stone. He told Hentoff that writing and recording the song washed away his dissatisfaction and restored his enthusiasm for creating music. Describing the experience, Dylan said, it's like a ghost is writing a song like that. You don't know what it means, except the ghost picked me to write that song. So that's like a rolling stone. Crazy, eh? He just writes yeah. 20 pages and narrows it down to essentially the greatest song of all time. Well, and, and the, the, the further background of that is on that tour of, of, of the UK, he was getting booed every night. Like everyone, the 80% of the crowd was booing him and yelling at him during the electric set. And you know who who else could say I don't care what you think I'm I'm going to keep doing this until they come around. Yeah, it's wild. I, I watched the uh, the movie. I think it was No Direction Home. It's like yeah. three and a half hours. Like it's so long. I, I started and I didn't realize how how long and intense it was. But uh, man, that paints a picture of of him going through that phase of going from the electric or the acoustic yeah. to electric and all the backlash and people throwing stuff and walking out and. You, you think to today where there's so many styles of, of music and and artists are known for going across genres and it's all normal now. And you think of what Bob Dylan went through and you think of today and it's like that stuff never happens today. It's all accepted. And I guess a part of it is he was kind of the genius ahead of his time that had to, you know, take the the, the brunt of, of uh, I guess, working in crowds to 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 expect that and be okay with it and and we benefit from that now as musicians well yeah dylan's he he invented everything you know he invented country rock you could say he invented folk rock uh he he put tin pan alley out of business before dylan no one no one's saying their own songs everyone like there were songwriters and there were singers and after dylan was like oh we got to be like dylan we got to write our own songs so so like a Rolling Stone comes out top 10 hit in, in a bunch of different countries. Uh, I mentioned Rolling Stone with the 500 greatest albums of all time. They also had the 500 greatest songs of all time, like a Rolling Stone top five. Again, uh, he had two other songs from this album on that list. So Desolation Row and Highway 61 Revisited. Uh, they were what, number 187 and 373. So he is just from one album, not his entire discography, from yeah. one album, three of the greatest songs of all time. I think there's only like eight songs on the album as well, right? It's a, a shorter album. Uh, nine songs. Yeah. Nine songs. Okay. Uh, another song that stood out to me was Ballad of a Thin Man. Just there's such like a groove and like a pocket yeah. and an intensity. There's there's like attitude. I can like feel attitude while I'm listening to yeah. this. And he, and he it's another, you know, Dylan just doesn't follow rules. You know, when I when I'm producing, I remember producing, working on a song with someone and, and saying like, no, your your course has to come up and right. Your course can't come down and register 
and that's what he does on Battle of the Thin Man. He goes up and up and up in the verse, and then he brings it down. And the like, no one, you're not allowed to do that. But if you're Dylan, you don't have to follow any rules because you're you're making up new rules as you go along. They uh, apparently him naming the album Highway 61 Revisited. I don't know why, but the label didn't like it. And it's it's like he wanted to name it that. And whoever at the lower end of the label spectrum was like, no, we can't do that. So he goes someone higher and apparently he fought all the way up to the top. And at the top, they're like, just let him fucking name it, whatever he wants. And it's yep. like a famous story with the album. I mean, who? I mean, who? it's not like that's a ridiculous name of an album. It's not something, you know, I, I yeah. someone else, um, Alf Annabellini of NVM None, he had in his top five, he had an album by Sparkle Horse. And the name of the album is like, viva dixie marine submarine it's literally like the entire right. alphabet so anyways bob dylan you know highway 61 revisited that's that's like a nice title but well with they the, label the people eh? were weird like you got to remember uh pet sounds beach boys they wouldn't let him call the song hang on to your ego he had to change it to i know there's an answer he said oh people people can't handle that it's wild it was it was olden times did, did you ever did you ever get to see bob dylan live oh uh, once i saw him uh the tempest tour uh i was just talking to uh, uh colin linden about this he he was playing with dylan the summer before i saw that tour and uh it was it was an, one of the most amazing shows i've ever seen it sounded perfect i was in the nosebleeds at the I don't know if it's still called the Sony Center, the old opera house in Toronto. Um, and it was it was it was mind blowing. Um, I know this guy from from the he's an old folk guy. And in, in, in the in the most humble way, he he told me we were talking about the show and he said, well, I'm not going to get into it, but I'm on the list for every Dylan show. So I go to every show. He said maybe, you know, maybe if it's the Sky Dome, I don't go to that show. And he said, and that one was top five. Wow. So I, I got lucky. It was, the band was, a, it was one of those shows where I wish it could have gone on for 12 hours because I was never, I was never not in awe of it. I could have just gone on listening to every little detail forever. He had you captivated. Yeah. Yeah. You hear that's, you know, some of the later shows, you know, closer to now, apparently like his voice isn't holding up so great. Uh, so I don't know if that's true or not, but it's awesome to hear that the show you were at, everything was just incredible. It was definitely the late period voice, but I, I remember it as he sounded a little better than on the last album that the album that he was touring. Um, yeah, it was just, yeah, it was, it was stunning. So I've seen that in the past, you've actually done gigs where you were covering the entire Blood on the Tracks album from Bob Dylan. Is that true? And if so, yeah. will you ever bring that back where you, you, we can come out and see a full Bob Dylan album? Uh, perform? Yeah, I'm hoping to do it in the fall here in Sault Ste. Marie with a, with a, a local stand-up bass player named Jay Case, who's kind of like a legend around here. Um, just the two of us, open tuning acoustic and a, and a stand-up bass. That would be amazing. I got to get out to Sault Ste. Marie. How, how far is that from Ottawa? Any idea? Uh, nine, nine and a half hours. 
So you're saying there's a chance. It is po- it is possible to physically get there. Um, I have just two reviews. So some great reviews that came out about the album, uh, and then we can move on to the next album. So uh, first review. So Michael Gray calls Highway 61 revolutionary and stunning, not just for its energy and panache, but in its vision, fusing radical electrical music with lyrics that were light years ahead of anyone else's. Dylan here unites the force of blues-based rock and roll with the power of poetry, the whole rock culture, the whole post beatle pop rock world. And so in an important sense, the 1960s actually started here with this album. So that's one quote. And then the other one is music journalist Gary Graff points to Highway 61 Revisited along with Dylan's next album, Blonde on Blonde and the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds as possibly starting as possible starting points to the album era, as they each constituted a cohesive and conceptual body of work rather than just some hit singles with filler tracks. So that's what you're saying. You know, suddenly there's artists that have a whole album's worth of yeah. songs. No, that's, uh, that, that's absolutely true. You, you, there's not many albums before 1965 that, that are, are that are notable. Um, you know, the, I would say the early Stones albums are are pretty awesome. I, I wouldn't say that about the early Beatles albums. Um, even the the Kinks, they kind of started their run of great albums in 1965. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of funny how it was uh, the the music industry. It was a singles thing. And then you have artists like the Beatles and Bob Dylan that have a full album's worth of music. And hey, a label can make more money selling an album than it can singles. And, you know, we went as with with an album kind of business model for a long time. And then when the, da- the, the illegal downloading and the Napsters and now the streaming, it seems like we're kind of more back in a singles world. Do you see it that way as well? Like we just came back to what it was pre-Beatles and Dylan? Yeah, I, I guess so. I don't know if... I think there's still people that are into albums. I I think part of it is just, it's just a shrinking audience for music in general. So I think there's always a core section of people that are really into music and those people are always going to be into albums. Um, And, you know, the music business is in in rough shape right now. So people aren't, there's not as many great records being made and that's part of the, you know, keeps eating itself. And so I think young people are, listening to old albums and realizing wow these are great like you'd be crazy not to listen to this whole thing so if you think the audience for music is shrinking where do you think these people are going are they they're getting more into video games or getting it yeah yeah things like that it's just not a, a big part of the culture anymore I guess it's the face and the tablets and the phones that there's, yeah. you know, mobile games and, and yeah. social media. I guess well, that's and, cutting and into and music time. Corporations have devalued music, you know. Um it's you know, to be a to be a, a, a pop star today, you need two things. You need to be really good looking and you need to play along. That's it. You don't need to sing, they can fix that. You just need to be willing to be a, a, a commodity. That's funny. Yeah. Singing is optional for a singer now with the technology. Yeah. I remember seeing, I remember seeing this thing that went viral and it was something along the lines of, you know, uh, I don't know, a a band will spend all this money in the studio and the record labels and, and, you know, they would spend all this time and they get everything down to, you know, there's a single you can buy for a dollar and people aren't paying for it and they'll go out every day and get a $5 Starbucks coffee, but they won't, 
you know, the yep. coffee yep. costs the company nothing to make. And then there's this album that people spent a hundred thousand dollars on or more, and you won't spend a dollar. It's it's the devaluation yep. of music, like you mentioned. It's sad. Do you ever cry at night, Bill, when you think about this stuff? Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> we all we all do. Let's uh, let's dive into the the next album. So you're you're the second album on your top five list, Steely Dan. The Royal Scam. This comes we're out. We're gonna go. We're gonna go chronological. So we're gonna go. Uh, Joe Walsh. Joe Walsh. Hey, you're the boss here. So Joe Walsh, 1973. The smoker you drink, the player you get. Uh, that's a pretty awesome album uh, title. Can you talk about the album title at all? It's a play on words, right? Yeah. Apparently, it refers to the higher you get, the better you sound. Okay. Which was definitely Joe Walsh's mo back in the early 70s. I'm going to preface this by telling a story that starts with Steely Dan. Uh, when I was 14 or 15, I went to a prayer group every Wednesday night with my older sister. And uh, what I liked about this was that that I brought my guitar and I would sing and play. That was the first time I'd ever done that. Um, and a guy at the prayer group lent me Steely Dan Asia. I never gave it back. I became obsessed with Steely Dan. Um, maybe the next summer, I'm sure if there was 77 or 78, when Van Halen re released their first album. Uh, and our family went on a trip to Toronto in the summer. And I went to Sam the Record Man. And because I, I had... I had Steely Dan Asia. I had the first album, which I uh, can't buy a thrill because it had a couple singles on it. So it was available in Sault Ste. Marie record stores, but the other albums were not available. So I went down with the intention of buying all those. So I bought Countdown to Ecstasy, Pretzel Logic, Katie Lied, and uh, uh, The Royal Scam. And so the Van Halen album would come out in March. And in May or June, it was running with the devil was all over the radio and I couldn't get enough of this song. I was just obsessed with it. So I bought those four Steely Dan albums, the first Van Halen record. And my older sister said, will you buy me the smoker you drink the player again? I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> so I got those six albums. I came home. I listened to Van Halen just all the time for two weeks. And then and then I came to the realization, huh, I'm kind of sick of running with the devil. I kind of don't want to hear Van Halen ever again in my entire life. <laughs> Whereas those other five records, if you if I'm anywhere and you put any of those songs on, I'm going to go, oh, my God, this is amazing. I still. They still just. I mean, this is a strange one, the smoker you drink, the player you get. It's Joe Walsh was not a solo guy. He did not want to be Joe Walsh. He wanted to be in a band. And this album shows his drummer, Joe Vitale, was a singer and a songwriter and a flute player. His flute is all over this and a bunch of the Joe Walsh albums. Uh, his bass player, uh, Ken Passarelli, he sings lead on one. Uh, Vitaly sings lead on two. And it's 
Rocky Mountain Way is the single, and that's about it for rock music. It's a very mellow, dreamy, it's just kind of my thing. It's very relaxing and hypnotic and and heartfelt and and it's just got so many beautiful passages and the the, the sequencing is great the the when it goes from from midnight moodies into happy ways with this snappy latin tinged bass line and you know everywhere is joe walsh's amazing voice and his amazing slide guitar and and yeah it's just uh you know the song "Wolf," the third song. It's just, I think, an acoustic, an acoustic guitar, and his electric guitar, and it just—it's just this amazing soundscape. I was—I was actually really impressed with this album. I, I uh, like you mentioned it. It's musically, it it gives you a lot. Like it gives you a lot of variety. It's not like every song is Rocky Mountain Way. It's. Yeah it's such a variety and it's probably because you mentioned all the different members that are in there and, and it's different people singing and different people writing. And I, I guess all those members were in a, a band at the time. And even, and for some reason this was labeled as his solo album, even though it was kind of a band effort. Yeah, and I, the, I hear the that there was a falling were... out over that, that it's actually part of why the, the actual band broke up and he continued solo. Right. Well, he kept going with Joe Vitale because Joe Vitale's all over uh, But Seriously Folks as well, which is also a, a, a fine album. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, I, I I just have a special kinship with 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 uh, Joe Walsh. We kind of have a similar nasally voice and he's just, everything he does is tasteful. You know, he's a great guitar player, but he's not flashy at all. He, he's he, he shows so much he never shreds i don't think there's any joe walsh solo where he just da -da 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 -da. it's always taste and and holding notes and emotion and so this th this was his second solo album uh but this was the big commercial breakthrough right because of rocky yeah. mountain way that was a big hit the album was a big hit goes gold um i i have the story of how he wrote uh rocky mountain way if you want to hear it it's interesting sure. so uh so he says so joe walsh says i'm living in colorado and i'm mowing the lawn i look up and there's the front range of the rocky mountains and there's snow on them in the summer and it knocked me back because it was just beautiful and i thought I guess I'm committed to being here. I'm in Colorado and the Rocky Mountain way is, is the better way than I had before. And then he goes, bam, I got the lyrics. So it was uh, just kind of in a moment of, of awe and, and, you know, the beauty of the mountains, the Rocky Mountain way. So it just came to him. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, the moral sure. of the story is you should be mowing the lawn. If it needs to be mowed, yeah. get out there and do it. And, and Joe Walsh is, is, is a total down to earth, every man guy. I, I came upon this this fan site of Joe Walsh, and it was written by this guy that worked on an Eagles show. He was a local crew, so he 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 gets to the show and he says, "Some roadie comes up to me and says, hey, would you would you like to? Will you go get me some strings?'" And gave him a list. He went to the music store. He's chatting with this guy, and the whole time he's assuming he's a ro a roadie because a guy from the Eagles would not be talking to me like this. And then the show starts. Oh, it's Joe Walsh. That's the kind of guy he was. There was no, I'm the rock star. You're the local crew. 
there's a there's a story here of, of how they got the sound for uh, the guitars in Rocky Mountain Way. So apparently it's just like six or seven guitars that he layered. They're just using a Shure SM57 microphone. And uh, I guess the engineer, the producer said that thick guitar sound is just from Walsh himself. There's no studio trickery uh, done afterwards. So just layer, nice. layering guitar upon guitar. Yeah. Bill, Bill, Simzik, 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 yeah. I didn't even, I saw the name and I just said, oh, I don't know, the engineer, I didn't want to try to pronounce that. The other thing about this record is, and I wish, I wish I still had the album or I wish I had someone else's vinyl copy because I swear something went wrong in the mastering and it had this 6K, 7K, 8K sheen to it that was over the top, which was fine by me because I, you know, it's, that's the reason it's called treble charger. I love, I love treble and it, but it just, I I'm pretty sure like he was drunk in the mastering session and kept, and kept saying, no, it needs to turn up the high end. I can't hear. Cause it, it really was, I mean, it didn't detract from the album, but it definitely, it had this, it was almost like a, that flowed through everything. You don't hear it on the, on the, the master, you know, the MP3s or whatever now, but they've gone back and remastered it. You think, or I would think so. Yeah, that's funny. They shaved off the high piercing mosquito frequencies that were yeah. in there. That's funny. Um, so a little Eagles uh, trivia here. Uh, I guess when the Eagles went back out on tour for the Long Road Out of Eden tour, uh, when they did the encore, they always did three songs. So they had Desperado and Take It Easy, and they would play Rocky Mountain Way. That was in the Eagles encore. Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, Joe Walsh is a great, he's a, you know, he, he's a very underrated songwriter. I would say Pretty Maids in a Row is easily the best song from Hotel California. Uh, in the City's another great Joe Walsh Eagle song. Uh, he, you know, Bob Dylan loves Pretty Maids all in a row. When I read that, I was like, <laughs> vindication. <laughs> that's awesome so i have uh i have a few words from critics and then we can move on to the next album so uh, all music says walsh's ability to swing wildly from one end of the rock scale to the other is unparalleled and makes for an album to suit many tastes it features some of the most remembered joe walsh tracks but it's not just these that make the album a success each of the nine tracks is a song to be proud of this is a superb album by anyone's standard so from all music so yeah. what what uh, what album do we dive into next? We're going chronologically. So are we back to Steely Dan? Yep. In 69. All right. So album number three, Steely Dan, The Royal Scam, 1969. Why does this one mean so much to you? 1976. What did I say? 69? Yep. 1976. There you go. Yeah. 1976. Um, so Steely Dan... They made six albums. I'm not counting their reunion albums in the 90s. They made six albums. The first one they had a they had a, a they were put to they were a, a, a record company creation. They got these guys together, put them with some other guys. Uh, this lead singer who was only on the first album sang three or four songs on the first album. Um, and then up to so that was Camp by a Thrill. The last one was Gaucho. 
Um, there, to me, the, 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 they, they do what no band, with the exception of Pavement, the 90s band that I mentioned earlier, this is this six album run is just there's no bad songs, which is no one does that. You know, some, some people, some really great artists can manage that in a span of however many albums. But at a certain point, they're like, oh, well, it's a bit of filler on this. Steely Dan, it, every song is great. There's just no songs that you could possibly call bad. Uh, the songs are so well put together. They 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 were like the Beatles. They stopped touring and just recorded. Uh, after the first two records, they dispensed with the idea of a regular band and just had session players. They would they would work on a song for two days and then they would say, "No, it's not working." Everyone out, and they would bring in a whole new band and start over. They would they would. Rick Derringer talks about I, I worked on this solo for 12 hours. They didn't keep it. Hmm. You know, just and for a guitar player, there is every single guitar solo on a Steely Dan song is one of the greatest guitar solos ever. There's just something about it. They just they just knew how to make records. They 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 had they had great taste. You know, they were jazz guys that, that hated rock and roll until the Beatles. Um, they were cynical New York guys. They were, you know, if you look on on uh, a video of Reeling in the Years, say, on the Midnight Special or something, you see everyone in the band, especially the, the, the lead singer, he's like the prototype lead singer. He's tall, he's got long hair, he's got a ridiculous outfit on, sort of like... Robert Plantish, you know, bell bottoms and the total rock star tie dye sh shirt. And, and, you know, he looks, he looks like he's going to be out of fashion in about seven months. And Donald Fagan and Walter Becker are wearing suit jackets and nice shoes and vests. And they look like they're, they're going to be fashionable in the seventies, eighties, nineties, and 30 years from now. And that, that to me says so much about what Steely Dan is. So my, my dad is a Steely Dan fan and my whole life I've basically heard if you're a guitarist, you should love Steely Dan. It's like the guitarist's band essentially. Yeah. And uh, there's five different guitarists playing on this album to show, yeah. you know, how much guitar wizardry is going on. And, you know, sometimes you think in an entire album, there might be a few tasty solos or riffs, I was essentially in every single song, there was two or three or four amazing intricate guitar parts, whether it's a solo gear. Like, wow, like what's going on? Yeah, it, 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 it it's like they approach songwriting differently. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's like it wasn't, you know, you think Bob Dylan, where it's like there's the story being told, essentially. And it felt like this. It's just like world-class musicians. Like, how can we make great music? You know, yeah. there will be lyrics, there will be vocals, but uh, it's it's just incredible world-class musicianship documented across several songs on an album. That's what I got out of it. Yeah. And and the other thing for me is like, I'm, I, I love Seely Dan is like by far my favorite 70s band, one of my favorite bands of all time. Uh, 
I, like I said, all their albums are great. Um, there's probably a good handful of Steely Dan songs from other albums that I like better than any of the songs on this album, but everything came together. This is just a great listening experience from start to finish. It just flows really well. It, it, yeah. And you said it's a, it's a guitar player's, you know, if you're a guitar player like Steely Dan, well, you could say the same thing about uh, <laughs> drums for sure. Keyboards, the, the horn arrangements, <laughs> you know, bass, whatever. That everything is everything is perfect. I don't think anyone did so well with overthinking than Steely Dan. You know, a lot of artists they 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 overthink too much and that, that things get watered down. But that doesn't seem to happen with Steely Dan. They just they just know they're just great editors. They're, they and listeners. Yeah, the, the harmonies also really jumped out to me. When they get yeah. to the choruses, there's these incredible harmonies. Is that what they were also known for? Or? Yeah, yeah, because they were very like jazz harmonies. Uh, uh, Michael McDonald that sang on most of these albums, he talks about on Peg from Asia, like it was really difficult because the notes are so close together. And that's really difficult to sing when you're one note is here, one note is this close to, to hear both and and so it was just harmony, like it, I, I've always been a good harmony arranger and able to listen to something and tease out the harmonies, but it's very difficult with Steely Dan. And it's very difficult to, to learn these songs. I'm trying to learn, you know, it's it's kind of teaching me jazz, trying to learn Steely Dan songs. So because, Asia would be the, the most commercially successful of the Steely Dan albums, yeah, right? Yeah, and it was the one after this. Okay, this this one led to that one. This one was still uh, top fifteen, went gold, three different singles, so still successful. But the yeah. next one was the Juggernaut. Yeah, but I mean, I never heard any of these songs on the radio for sure. I mean, it was up in Sault Ste. Marie, but even like we had a good uh, uh, album, you know, freeform album uh, FM station across the river, and they would play a little bit of Steely Dan, but uh, it just. Like I said, yeah, Bernard Purdy plays drums on most of it. Uh, uh, Larry Carlton plays a lot of guitar. There's just so many. I, when I look at the track listing, every song has something amazing happening, whether it's Sign-In Stranger has this, inc this like stinky guitar by uh, Elliot Randall. And then at the end, it goes into this incredible horn arrangement coda that just kind of blows the roof off and just takes the song in a completely different direction. Uh, the I ran across this great quote from Walter Becker about the song, The Fez, because uh, the, the piano player, Paul Griffin played on it, and he's the only person to ever have a Steely Dan co-write. And Walter Becker said, there's an instrumental melody that Paul started playing in the session and when we decided to build that melody up to a greater position, since we had some suspicion that perhaps this melody wasn't entirely Paul's invention, we decided to give him composer credit in case later some sort of scandal developed and he would take the brunt of the impact. It's a good business move. That sums up Steely Dan's like cynical, dry sense of humor. 
Yeah, the uh, the same song, the Fez. Uh, I've never heard this before, but the Fez refers to a condom. Have you ever heard of a condom yeah. called the Fez, or is it this song that popularized that? Uh, no, I think it was just like a bit the the hat being okay. So, uh, so yeah, they say the Fez. The composition was explained as a cheerful ode to the importance of always wearing a condom. Uh, yeah, and the, the the lyrics say, "I'm never gonna do it without the fez on." So I that those that's the humor that I kept hearing throughout the album. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm not familiar with you know the lore of the band, but uh, uh, apparently the royal scam is littered with cryptic allusions to people and events, both real and fictional. Is that something across all their albums? There's all these cryptic things going on, and late like 20 years so later in an interview, they'll say, "Oh." You know, they'll give you more hints of what's going on. There's always, they're kind of like, like Lou Reed in that kind of like non-judge. Well, Lou Reed was famously talking about underground characters in a non-judgmental way. Steely Dan, there's definitely some judgment, but there's always, it's, it's always drug dealers and, and, you know, people getting wasted and, and. I mean, I I remember, you know, 16-year-old me being obsessed with the title track, The Royal Scam, and figuring out that, that it was about Puerto Ricans. And it was like putting together a puzzle, like, oh, St. John, that's the capital of Puerto Rico. That's what they're talking about. And just having this sense of, of I'm discovering something very important here. That's what it's like when I listen to albums from Nine Inch Nails or Tool. There's like all this cryptic stuff. You're trying to decode what what the lyrics mean and, and you know, the Fibonacci sequence and all these famous things with both bands. Um, when I first played the album, so the first single, uh, Kid Charlemagne, I think it's the first song on the album as well that kicks off the album. Yep. When it came on right away, I knew the song, but not from them. And I don't know if you're a Kanye West fan, but uh, on his third album, um, so the song is called Champion. There's a Kanye West song called Champion on the third album, Graduation, considered one of the greatest albums of all time. And it's it samples Kid Charlemagne. So that's why I actually knew the song already. Right, and and just to double check that I'm not crazy, I went to the credits, the Kanye West credits, and it's credited to West, Walter Becker, and Donald Fagan on that yeah. song. So a little boost from Kanye West. Uh, in yeah, the cow was sampled for another hip hop song. Okay. And then uh, going through, so I just have notes on a few songs on the album. I went through and listened to the, the five albums that you chose. So the caves of Altamira, I put the, the great harmonies in the chorus, delicious sax and horn section playing in the final third of the song. Uh, man, it's so tasty. Uh, yeah, so the, the, whatever's going on. We're, we're so everything they did was 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 perfect they just they they didn't make any missteps somehow they just they worked until it and this was the, the album before katie lied was one of the first albums to use the dbx system which, which was a way of having more dynamic range and less noise and something went wrong so they were just i mean i've never it doesn't sound great, but it doesn't sound terrible. But the, but they thought it was the end of the world. That, that that this was just like a you know they they had to like hang their heads in shame that they put out this piece of garbage because something went wrong with the technology. They were they were that obsessed, you know. And Gaucho, one of the reasons it took so long is they were it was the 
one of the first kind of proto pro tools thing where they could actually edit the drums and then once that can of worms was open it was like oh well <laughs> let's there's another seven months right there they just, just worked until they they got it right and and it always ended up right and at the same time they were you know lyrically it was just they were so cynical and brilliant uh, the the song uh, haitian divorce in the the bridge the bridge ends with it's a story song about a woman getting a divorce because it, back then you could go to some some place and get an easy to no fault divorce if you went to Haiti or or Bahamas. Does this place still there. exist? I mean, this could come in candy for you know yeah. people. I'm not sure. Yeah, because 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 with Reno was the same thing. You'd go to Las Vegas. There's different laws, and, and <laughs> so this woman, the marriage goes south, and this woman goes to Haiti, and she meets up with someone, and uh, and then at the end. And the bridge kind of it, they, 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 everything's cinematic with, with Steely Dan. They tell the story in the first verse and then the bridge kind of advances the plot. And then the end of the bridge says, now we dolly back. Now we fade to black. And then the next, the next verse is tearful reunion in the U S you know, it's, it's a, that, that dollying back and fate, like an old movie. It's like wrapping up the narrative and, and here we, now we're going to present day, you know, that everything was on, on so many levels with them. so visual. Yeah. Wow. I have uh, I have notes for two songs. So don't take me alive. I put a super tasty guitar solo to start the song and the bass playing is amazing. And then sign in stranger, I put great piano playing. The solo at the end of the song is super melodic. So I was yeah. just, I, I think this, I think the Steely Dan album, The Royal Scam, I think that's my favorite of the five albums. Uh, just front to back, just taking it all in. And uh, maybe maybe because I'm a guitarist, it just it just felt so good. You know, the guitars, it, 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 so yes, what they're playing is incredible, but it's not like they're showing off like in a thrash metal band. It, it just, such unbelievable guitar playing just yeah. the, the tones they're getting and what they're playing and it, you can hear it's in different styles and genres and and it sounds like they could play anything you know yeah well the the don't take me alive is the famous impossible chord that larry carlton plays it it's extremely difficult to play the whole chord so he plays it slow strums this chord and then it just feeds back into this like flawless feedback right into the solo like you say and that was you know larry carlton his his es335 and his i heard a story about he was working on a a, a, a later donald fagan solo album and he came to new york and uh and he had his guitar and, and fagan said where's your amp because he had a he had a tweed deluxe amp and that was part of his sound he said well, it's New York. I figured we, you know, we could rent one just as good. Fagan said, "No, no, ship the amp. We need that. We need that amp." And it's just, you know, Larry Carlton said, "Someone asked him, what's your sound?'" He said, "I, I turn it up until it barks." <laughs> There's a lot of barking going on in this album. That's funny. The uh, that's funny. The impossible chord. You need six fingers to play it or something. Yeah. Uh, I, I have. 
man, the Eagles keep coming up across these albums, but uh, for the song, everything you did. So a lyric says, turn up the Eagles. The neighbors are listening. And the story yeah. behind that, uh, Glenn Frey of the Eagles said, apparently Walter Becker's girlfriend loved the Eagles and she played them all the time. I think it drove them nuts. So the story goes that they were having a fight one day and that was the genesis of the line. And then it says, given that the two bands shared a manager and that the Eagles proclaimed their admiration for Steely Dan, it was more of a friendly rivalry than a feud. And then to return the favor for Steely Dan saying the Eagles in their lyrics uh, later that year in a nod back to Steely Dan for the free publicity, it, it inspired Steely Dan's. Uh, so it's uh, the Eagles pen the lyrics. They stab it with their steely knives, but they just can't kill the beast. So it's like one of the most famous lines and songs ever, you know, Hotel California. Frey commented, we just wanted to allude to Steely Dan rather than mentioning them outright. So Dan got changed to knives, which is still, you know, a penile metaphor. So, yeah, I, I don't know. The Eagles are, are running through all your, your albums here. It's Yeah. Well, and, and I, do you know about the, the birth of the name Steely Dan? I don't know. It's uh, it's uh, William S. Burroughs, the the very strange writer. One of my favorite writers is his book Naked Lunch, novel Naked Lunch, which is not so much a novel as just a bunch of stream of consciousness weirdness. And in one of the rare narrative parts of the one character has this dildo called Seely Dan, which is essentially a knife. Oh my god! Ah, oh, this band. There's so much stuff going on here. Uh, yeah. What what my favorite thing from the Eagles, well, besides all the incredible music, is the story of I guess at some point they were kind of broken up or weren't touring or things weren't going well, and someone asked them, "When are you guys going to tour again?" And they said, "When Hell Freezes Over." And then years yeah. later, they're on tour and it's the Hell Freezes Over tour. I thought that was like the most amazing thing ever. Yeah. Um, what else we got? I got one more thing here. Um, so about the album cover, again, this is their sense of humor. So the album cover shows a man in a suit sleeping on a radiator and dreaming of skyscraper beast hybrids. Fagan and Becker claim it to be the most hideous album cover of the seventies <laughs> bar none, excepting perhaps their own album can't buy a thrill. <laughs> so they, they, they have, they, in their own opinion, they have two of the ugliest album covers of all time. Well, that's, you know, that's another thing I love about Steely Dan. They're they're they are not full. They may be full of themselves, but they also hate themselves. So that's to me. That's what every great musician is—a combination of of incredible ego and incredible self-loathing. The the dichotomy, the walking contradiction within the uh, the own band here. Um, what's strange is. You know, I, I listen. I just listened to the album for the first time, and and it's incredible. I loved it. Surprisingly, it actually didn't receive great reviews when it came out, and then retrospectively, it's very well looked upon, and it's it's on the list of the uh, hundred greatest. Uh, sorry, the uh, all time thousand albums from Colin Larkin. I guess as a music right. critic, it's a famous list. So, yeah, some man, some sometimes albums are ahead of their time, and it takes time to catch up. Yep. Yep yeah it's like like highway 61 there you go I, I i was shocked to see that the band i knew they were popular but they've sold over 40 million albums which is wild that's what you know one of the best yeah, selling bands it, of all time it's really amazing because i you know you know 
one of the things that like I, the seventies was just an incredible decade for music. There was so much going on. And, and what I think one of the things that makes the seventies for me, the best decade, decade of music is you have these bands that in any other time are niche alternative bands that they're getting giant big label budgets to make great records like like this one yeah i, I was going to say that with um you know there's two more albums we're going to dive into talking heads i'd say it's the same thing with that band like they're so unique and strange yep. and it seems like at a different point in time they they wouldn't have broken through like they did you know i was yeah. shocked at how popular they were as well with the 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 strangeness of their music uh so i've i've two points uh, two points left about uh, Steely Dan, and then we'll uh, we'll move on. So VH1 ranks Steely Dan at number 82 on their list of the 100 greatest musical artists of all time. And then Rolling Stone ranked them at number 15 on the list of 20 greatest duos of all time. Uh, and then I have uh, one comment sent in for you from a fan. So this is uh, on YouTube. Uh, a YouTube user named Random Thoughts said, this man to me is a legend. Red is the best Canadian song ever. So just a little, just a little, some kind words sent in there. Make us feel good here. Um, next album. So again, still going in order. So we'll flip over to uh, Talking Heads, Fear of Music, 1979. This is your fourth choice. And I mentioned to you uh, before we started this that you are the fifth person to do this new series, my five favorite albums. And this Talking Heads album is the third album out of five people. Three of you chose the Talking Heads album, which is, that to me, that's crazy, you know, of, of it could be the Beatles, it could be the Rolling Stones, it could be whoever. Uh, three Talking Heads albums, and all three are different albums to show you how how great their discography is. Um, so I'm those gonna albums... Guess, I'm going to guess ahead. the other two are more songs about buildings and food and Remain in Light. So Remain in Light was uh, David Bottrell, the producer. That was his choice. And then we have a different choice. Alf Annabellini from Envy of None. He went with the live album, Stop Making Sense. So, okay. so the I guess the live DVDs considered one of the greatest live yeah, yeah. performances of all time. And I he saw chose that score. And I, I prefer the previous live album. The name of this band is Talking Heads. Okay. What, what do you think makes it superior to stop making sense? Uh, well, stop making sense. You know, the end of the seventies was bad for everyone. No, no one emerged unscathed by the, the, I always talk about music really, really died at the end of this. It was a perfect storm of, of badness. You had the corporatization of everything, which meant that, that uh, radio was being bought up by stations and there was no more DJs with taste that could play whatever they want. It was, it was the corporation corporations want this playlist. And the, uh, you had the advent of, of digital gear, which was terrible. So, so everyone sounded the same in a bad way. You had the advent of video, which meant that looks were more important than previous. So, you know, better music got left by the wayside because you're not good looking enough. Um, and then cocaine. I think the perfect it. storm. And and I would say fear of music is the perfect like 
not not many albums were improved by cocaine, but this one definitely was because it's it sounds urban and paranoid, and and it's you 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 enter a world in this album where and it's Brian Eno's the producer. He did this is the the middle of the three Talking Heads albums that he produced. Um, I had the 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 uh, 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 a serendipitous experience when I bought the, the reissue of more songs about buildings and food, the previous album. Like you hear a talking heads song from this Eno period and you, you can't figure out what's going on. And there was a, there was a DVD of a live performance of one of the songs. And I clicked on the live performance. And I was like, Oh, it's just, this, this song is just the four guys. It's just drums, bass, this guitar, this guitar. But you you can't hear that in in Eno's. It just it, it, he just soundscapes everything. And so it's there's the way it's mixed. Do you think it's the way it's mixed that doesn't have it's the everything that he brings to the table and and the, everything that everyone brings to the table. Um, it's just a really great confluence. You know, David Burns' weirdness. Uh, be, you know the the other thing that that strikes me very strangely about Talking Heads because somehow I got into Talking Heads when I was in high school. I don't know how, who introduced me. They had no radio songs. Uh, but I knew this guy, I hung out with this football player and we both loved, loved Talking Heads. I love Talking Heads because it was weird and subversive and strange. He loved it because it was football practice, funky get excited music, which was just so bizarre to me. But now I realize, you know, the drummer is obsessed with James Brown. He's a, he's a, he's a metronome. He's a robot in, in the most awesome way. And that, you know, there's obviously a giant African influence on this entire album, but also just a, you know, like highway 61, just the sound of, of, uh, the word awe, A-W-E, there was a piece in the New York Times a little while ago about it. And it's, and for me, one of my favorite things about listening to music is that sense of awe, that sense of what is going on right now. Like, I don't understand what's going on. This album just takes you into this sound space and just creates this world where it's not, it's not just four people in a room making music it's something else it's a it's a it takes you a different place it's it's like a taste into the divine it's like you get that with music or beauty or or you know world-class achievements you just there's that sense of awe of what is truly possible yeah and you I, know I we could all be more than we are and yeah. different music affects me in different ways some like i would say any of the mellow tracks on on the Joe Walsh album, it starts and I go, oh, I sink into it, and or like a nice slow Steely Dan song with a great groove. It's like, oh, I feel relaxed and perfect. But fear of music is more like awe. Oh, it's like I don't understand what's going on. I'm I'm in awe. I'm confused. In, a, in an amazing way. How, how important do you think Brian Eno was to the band to help them 
um, in the studio to get their confidence in the studio to help them actually pull off. They have such grandiose ideas. And I feel like he was kind of there containing the, you know, the insanity that is the big ideas and being able to put it all down to tape in a way that people can actually, you know, take it in. I think, you know, certain are like, like the artist Van Morrison, he's, you can't, you can't really discuss rationally why he's a great artist because he's in a different plane of existence. You know, Bob Dylan is probably the, the same kind of thing. And I think that's what Eno is as, as a producer. He's not, he's not your typical, oh, I have this skill set and I, I have this great mic collection. Uh, he just approaches it very differently it's it's more like i would say rick rubin is like the the descendant of 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 brian you know it's it's more of a philosophy of music than a than a like this is what i do as a producer rick rubin just a few weeks ago put out a new book on creativity and i i just read it i was on vacation for a week and uh that's what i was reading while i was there so i'm fresh into the rick rubin zone and he's he, he's such like a Zen spirit, you know, instead of being super hands on, he's just kind of in, in the room with the artist, taking it in. And then two hours later, he'll just pop in an idea like, hey, what if we started the song with that instead of, you know, waiting for the chorus? And the band's always like, oh, my God, that's such a good idea. I find that Rick Rubin has a great ability to work with older artists that have kind of lost their way a little bit and yeah. to somehow get them in the right mindset back to when they were making their best music. He's like the comeback producer, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we were talking about William S. Burroughs and one of his writing techniques was he would write words and, or he would write a paragraph and then he would cut it into little pieces and he would scatter the pieces and then he would tape them together randomly. And that would be the writing. Well, Eno does the same thing. He would do like a tarot card. He would like have weird suggestions and, you know, make it purple or, or something. And it was always like trying to like mess with things to make them different and, and not just like this, this is how we make a song. It starts here and it ends here. And, you know, there's a, uh, the remain in light, the, the, the single, uh, um, once in a lifetime, I read this amazing thing that Eno said, part of the reason that song sounds so weird is because there was a bit of a disagreement as to what the one was. Some people thought it was like a half note apart. And that, so it's that kind of thing. I think he, he, you can, you can tell that he's, he's making things difficult. He's, he's, you know, what, what does he bring to the table? I think it's taking, taking you out of your comfort zone and, and going somewhere completely different. Yeah. Apparently they, they didn't record in a normal studio that uh, uh, like a re a mobile right. recording van yep. pulled up and they put cables through the windows. So it's like from outside, the cables ran through the windows that was uh, big, into the Neil, apartment. Neil Young was big on that as well. That's how they made tonight's the night. He, cause he didn't want to be in a studio. He definitely didn't want to be in a studio and I'm with him on this. You know, we did some recording at uh, Metalworks in Toronto and uh, great studio, great guys, but there was, 
there was a whole uh, 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 secretarial staff there and it just, it didn't put you in the mood. And Neil was like, I don't want, I don't want interaction with anyone like. And um, Brian Eno, we're talking about Brian Eno and, and, you know, not going in studios and all that. Brian Eno has done, done stuff with Neil Young as well. Right. That's uh, didn't he do. uh, So didn't he do a, a, a Neil Young album, Brian Eno? No, no I don't think so. No, you might oh, be thinking. There's always Daniel two. Lenoir and Brian Eno, but I'm mixing yeah. up the two. Yeah, so Daniel Lenoir. Okay, that was the Lenoir's album that he did yeah, not yeah, that many years yeah. ago. Okay. Uh, but Brian Eno and Daniel Lenoir, it's those two. They did a lot of U- U2 stuff together? Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, um, it's all, all, all jumbled up, and it's all the... You know, all the connections are coming through in the right place. Well, the, the, uh, yeah, that's reminding me of another thing that uh, uh, one of my favorite bands, Luna. Th- there's a there's a song called uh, I can't remember what it what it is uh, off their Pup Tent album, and th- there's a guitar solo. That I always thought like, wow, that guitar solo is just amazing. It sounds incredible. Luna was the, they were an indie rock band. They weren't that successful. They didn't have that much money, but they were being produced by a guy named McCarthy who was an assistant to Eno for the U2 albums. And so he, he'd taken Eno's thing as like, oh, well, if we want to get a good guitar solo, we're going to spend four days on it because the, the, there is, you know, budget constraints don't exist. So it's that kind of like level of, of attention. And like, we're going to keep working on this and until we get it right that, that, you know, so many of the bands that I love, you know, radio, Radiohead are like that. We're going to just keep going until we get the sound we want. Yeah. Radiohead is one that comes up, uh, you know, when, when I ask people their favorite albums. So we had uh okay. Computer was one in, in yeah. the series, but uh, another band that has, you know, three, four or five all-time great albums in their discography. Uh, so I listened to this album, fear of music, twice front to back with a good pair of studio headphones. And one thing that jumps out to me was the bass playing. It seems like it's, I would consider it like one of the lead instruments on this album. Do you agree yeah. with that? Yeah. She, and there weren't very many, you know, there's Carol Kay, but there weren't very many female bass players around in, in the, the late seventies. Um, uh, some people, some women think that, that women are, are designed to play the bass because the the low notes reverberate in their ovaries somehow. Um, I don't know if that's true, but makes you want to practice more possibly. Well, you know, Kim Deal from the Pixies and Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth, and but definitely Tina Weymouth, and she had a weird bass that was some sort of weird Gibson studio or something. Again, it was like four people all bringing something, you know, Jerry Harrison and, you know, with his and David Byrne with their funk rhythms and, and Chris France, his, his funk drumming. And (laughs) when you look at this album, are there certain songs that stand out to you as being the strongest or your favorite? I have notes on, on several different songs here. Yeah. One thing before you uh, dive in. Yeah, no problem. The, uh, the two hour interviews, you got to top up the water because yeah, the voice will give out at some point. Um, What's funny is you mentioned, you know, you know, this is one of the rare albums where maybe cocaine actually helped in making a better album. And 
I have notes. The final song on the album is called Drugs. And my note is what are the what are the chances that someone was on uh, drugs while writing and recording the song? So well, quite high, apparently. I would I would think so. For me, that well, one of the things that I look for in a great album is do you have three songs, boom, 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 where it's these songs are untouchable. So for me, it's it's two, three, and four, mind, paper, and and cities. And they they they're just they're frantic. They're you know, at the end of mind, it's this weird coda of guitar that comes out of nowhere and just takes over the song. Paper just has this amazing guitar arpeggio thing to the start that just it's so much of the album is frantic you know cities has the starts with one of my favorite things the fade up so there's very few songs that fade up but when when they do it's like it's it's just yeah the, the album it's 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 skittery it's it's paranoid it's it's like too much coffee and cocaine it's it's you know the cover is 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 just black with raised the diamond tiles yeah like a manhole cover or like a like a mesa boogie rectifier the little back and forth things you know very very urban very cold and uncompromising what i what i found strange is the album cover doesn't look like anything special like yeah it's it's appropriate for the music but in 1980, it was up for Best Recording Package at the Grammys. Like, it got nominated based on that album. Well, because because you were missing it, it's 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 letterpress. It's these diamonds are punched out. Oh, it's actually raised on it. It's actually raised. Ah, so it's as a whole that it, it was nominated. Yeah. See what we miss here with Spotify exactly. and digital? We're not getting the goods, man. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, those three songs, uh, Memories Can't Wait to Close Side One. Uh, that's maybe my favorite Talking Heads album song of all time. It's again at the end, it just goes into overdrive. It, it's and again, David Byrne just has this sense of like panic in his voice. It's it's very it's not relaxing, but it's, 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 again, yeah, it's awe. I'm in awe. So by the time we got to the song Mind, uh, it's where David Byrne's vocals like really stood out to me. And the notes I took are, man, he's such a unique vocalist. The delivery, the phrasing, the mix of speaking and singing, the notes he hits. I mean, when he sings, you know it's him. There's, there's nobody that sounds like that. Yeah. Yeah, he just uh, you know it's it's not like here's the melody I'm going to sing it. It's it's yelping and screaming and and it, yeah, it's just and and I think that's possibly part of Eno's thing. It's like there are no no rules. We're not trying to sound like anything. We're trying to sound like something that's never been done before. And he consistently succeeded with that. 
I, I listened to the album again today. I went for a 30 minute walk before the interview just to get some fresh air, get the, the juices flowing. And uh, for Life During Wartime, which was one of the that was the first single, I put down Wicked Disco Dance Groove to it. I found I had a little extra pep in my step when that yep, one came 100%. on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what other notes do I have for some of these? I found in the song Air, there was this weird, like extraterrestrial synth sound that came in in the verses, this weird synthy sound yeah. that would pop in. And I'm like, I don't know what instrument makes that. And uh, I, I thought that Heaven had one of the best choruses I've heard from a Talking Head song. Yeah. And it was the harmonies. It's like it drops into this low note and comes in at the start of each line. And that that harmony, like that's the awe. You know, oh, heaven is heaven is always the choice for like it's like the thinking man's uh, uh, solo acoustic guitar player, coffee house guy. If you want to impress somebody with that song, uh, I guess the last point about any of the songs, animals near the end of the album. I thought that was such a strange song with the lyrics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and just the you, you know the the. The second side that everything's everything's one or two air heaven animals electric guitar drugs it's like <laughs> these are the things you need that's a snapshot right there yeah the uh, the title fear of music apparently it's there was so much pressure on them for you know writing their music right. that, that they just called it fear of music it's like they don't want, yeah, you know it's... you don't want to go to work on Monday kind of thing and again it's 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 a perfect title for the for the you know the the ones the other two Eno songs bracketing this one they don't have the same kind of like paranoid like i'm i'm afraid kind of thing going on so i i have uh two reviews of the album and then uh a few lists that uh that name it as one of the best albums of all time so rolling stone says fear of music is often deliberately and bri brilliantly disorienting the album is foreboding, inescapably urban, and obsessed with texture. And that has to do with the artwork as well. It's all one thing. And then New York Magazine says what makes the record so successful, it is genuine. It genuinely felt anti-elitist. Talking, head, Talking Heads was clever enough to make the intellectual infectious and even danceable. So the thinking man's band. Yep. And then we have uh, three three lists here. So NME placed Fear of Music at number 68 on its all-time 100 albums. Channel 4 ranked it at number 76 during its 100 Greatest Albums countdown. And it was included in the book 1,001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. So that's what I have for Fear of Music. I have uh, some comments, uh, comments sent in here from someone on YouTube. <laughs> the, the YouTube handle is i have no idea what i'm doing 500 that's who sent this in so whoever you are i have no idea what i'm doing 500 uh, this is from them they say uh, bill is my all-time favorite music i'm so jealous you get to interview him so yeah no questions just comments so there you go sprinkling some comments in here and we are down to the final album got to reshuffle my pages here uh, so guided by voices alien lanes this comes out in 1995 this is Man, you put me to work. This is 28 songs. And even though that 28 song sounds overwhelming, it still only clocks in at 41 minutes. So what can you tell us about this album? Well, you know, I knew I knew I had to have on this list uh, a, a 90s indie rock album. 
and my choices were this or or pavement wowie zowie or maybe soft bulletin or or uh, spiritualized ladies and gentlemen we are floating in space and i went with this one and then i thought oh, i don't know if that was the right choice and then just a couple of days ago i listened to it all the way through partly because i wanted to i wanted to know recognize what every song was so i have i have the list here with like cheat notes to like to remember oh right it's this song and it to me this album sounds like it sounds like one of the greatest bands of all time their greatest hits collection it's just there's no there's no bad song there's only short songs and so they they're it, he's able to distill what's he's able to recognize what's great and 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 you know that's that's what a producer does you like take away the bad stuff and accentuate the good stuff and i mean this one is just it <laughs> the funny story about this one is is when i was hanging around in toronto in the in the 90s we all went to rotate this on Queen Street, uh, right between just uh, west of Bathurst, and uh, a guy named Chris Harper was was uh, worked there. It was owned by a guy named Pierre. I think it's still around. I think it moved around the corner a while ago. I think Pierre still runs it. Uh, Chris has long since moved on. He has a bar called Pharmacy in Parkdale, and Chris was the ultimate arbiter of good taste. And he told you what albums to buy and what albums not to buy. And, and I went in, I, I read about Guided by Voices. I'm like, wow, this it sounds like this band is for me. And I said, Chris, should I buy Alien Lanes? And he said, said Bill, do you have the White Album? I said, yes. He said, then you don't need it. <laughs> I told him about that the last one of the last times I saw him five or 10 years ago. He said, God, I was such an asshole back then. <laughs> So when the next album came out, I bought that and I went, oh yeah, this, this band is for me. And I went back and, and listened to this. It's, it's flawlessly uh, uh, sequenced. You know, the first album is the, the first song is an introduction. It's, you know, the club is open. They had, they actually had a song, a sign that said the club is open. Uh and then the the last song is is a is an ending song, and the the penultimate song always crush me is just that that kind of second last like super super heavy intense song, and in between it just it, again, and then the important thing to understand is this is a four track a Tascam four track recording with a a cheap realistic microphone like not even a not even a 57 like a stereo realistic microphone uh famously you probably read this as well they got a hundred thousand dollar advance and it cost ten dollars which probably they, like a little yeah box. they said if we took out all the money we spent on beer the album would be yeah. about ten dollars because it would I, be like a box of of cassette tapes of maxl xl 90s and it just, it's it sequenced so perfectly. And again, like Fear of Music, the, the four track allows it to occupy this bizarre sonic space that just, 
shape shifts all the time. I mean, the, you know, the, the Steely Dan record, it's very diverse, but it's kind of grounded in this, but in a single 45 second song, so many of these songs will just dramatically change. The, the four track has the ability to make it this incredible soundscape of, of like what's going on, you know, uh, what's the one I'm thinking of? Uh, it's hard to find within 28 songs, you know, it's hard to find it. A song that just, it, it, it had, repeats this line. Sometimes I get the feeling I, that you don't want me around. It's very garagey and it stops after 15 seconds. And then it goes into this middle with a little bit of acoustic guitar. And then it goes back to the beginning, but it sounds totally different. It has a harmony, but everything that the vocals sound different, the, the, the drums and guitar sound different, but the whole thing is over in about 33 seconds. And it just takes you on this. I always thought like, okay, that beginning is okay, but it's a little, and then the, when it reintroduces it with a harmony, it's like, oh, now, now it makes sense. I think it's Pimple Zoo. Yeah, it's called Pimple Zoo. So the, the, you're describing this lo-fi, um, you know, four-track cassette recorder, that that sound. That's not just this album. That's what they're known for. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, well, they started out, see, Guided by Voices is just the strangest albums. You talked about 100 episodes. Robert Pollard, a couple of years ago, passed the 100 album mark. He has made, so I would, and he's, for the last at least 10 years, he's put out at least three albums a year. He's essentially shooting himself in the foot because no one can listen to three albums a year by an artist year after year after year. I'm constantly, every so often I, I run across a newer song and I go, oh, I, I, I thought it was over for, for Robert Paul. I thought he'd like blown his load and that was it. And I hear a song I'm like, wow, this is as good as the, the, the classic period. So this is the, the highlight, the, maybe the highlight of the classic period of Guided by Voices. So this is a band at this point, he's a 37 year old elementary school teacher in Dayton, Ohio, and not even Dayton. You know, when, when I started getting into them and hearing about it was always Dayton, Ohio. And I read the biography and all his buddies are like, why do you keep saying Dayton? What, we live in fucking Northridge. Like it's just a, a, just outside. a right. shitty part of Dayton. <laughs> Apparently about two or three albums before this, his wife and his wife's parents took him out to dinner and said, Hey, you know, I know you're uh, you really like this music thing, but you know, maybe it's time to start concentrating on being a teacher and just put this music thing to rest. And just shortly after that, somehow a tape wound up in the hands of Gerard Cosloy, the founder of Matador Records. And they were, they went, they played CBGB and Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth was there and the Beastie Boys were there. And this was the height of grunge where what you did live was you know you you stood there with a stern look on your face you know very calm and in control well these guys they they played like the who like he robert pollard does karate kicks and mic twirls and, <laughs> and they all just 
and and these all these two cool indie rock guys were like wow this is the most amazing thing i've ever seen and they were like they're a great live band that's totally different than what they do in the recording they're both great cuz cuz the songs are great but somehow the songs work with four track perfectly one of the things is i remember around the time the early 90s if you listen to almost any major label recording with an acoustic guitar on it the acoustic guitar sounded awful <laughs> they, they, they engineers seemed to have lost the ability or they were relying too much on pickups it would have this like overly treble trebly it didn't sound like a great 60s or 70s except gotta buy voices because they you know i i think like if if there's no hiss if there's no tape hiss, your acoustic guitar is not going to sound good. And they 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 understood that. So the, the acoustic sounds are so real and organic and full sounding. I was going to mention their uh, prolific output. You know, if if a if if a band releases, I don't know, eight full length albums in their career, I mean that's that's pretty good. These guys they have thirty five, like the band itself, guided by voices, thirty five full-length albums it's yeah that's insane i mean how is that even possible i mean that pales in comparison to the hundred albums you said that one of the members has released but yeah well and but he's the band i mean the the he's the only constant member in the band um they've they've done this was the classic period they've done tours recently with the classic period but they you know i saw them in 15 years ago they had a different lineup than what they have today it's always young guys that want to want to play and um and and they had you know like i was talking about earlier about runs of amazing albums this period from 1993 to 1998 i think he put out three solo albums they're all amazing and all the all the albums are amazing uh, they're just no i i consider this album flawless it's there's a song called X Supermodel. It has it has snoring on it. Very high in the mix. I don't know if you recognize that. There's an electric guitar and Pollard singing and snoring because he had a he's a drinker, Robert Pollard. He he had a he, you know, he was lived in the suburbs with his wife and his kids and in the backyard he had a clubhouse called the monument club and his buddies would come over and drink so they recorded some guy snoring one night and it's really nasty snoring and it's again really high in the mix and i'm convinced that if you took the snoring out the song would be too good it would it would it would hurt your it would destroy your brain he's i think robert pollard's peers in melodicism are Paul McCartney. And I think he's one of the greatest melody writers of all time. Um, uh, the uh, Mitch from, from Dawn Vale that we were talking about in our interview, he's a giant guided by voices fan like me. Um, and one day I was saying, I said to him, like, is Robert Pollard just the best rock singer of all time? And Mitch said, no, no, he's not. And I thought, Oh, I guess you're right. 
I mean, he's drunk all the time, so he doesn't always sing so well. He, but he's he. It's a cross between John Lennon, Peter Gabriel, and and uh, Roger Daltrey. But he's such a gifted melodicist that it comes across like he's the greatest singer of all time because he just he can't write a bad melody. Do you think he's underappreciated as an artist? Well, that's. Who, I don't know what that term means. I mean, it, it's, it was the 90s. He was an indie rock, you know, like I said, if it, if it were the 70s, he would be Steely Dan. Okay. He would sell lots of records, but that wasn't going to happen in the, in the 90s. Things had, you know, indie rock, was, indie rock was invented because things went so wrong in the 80s because major labels signed shitty bands and if you wanted to be a great band you like the replacements or the pixies or sonic youth you 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 were in the indie territory whereas in 70s you'd be talking heads and steely dan so out of the the five albums that you chose uh this is the one that i really have to get back to because again with the 28 songs you know, you listen through it and it's a lot to take in. So it's one that you you need a few listens to sink your teeth into it and, and to differentiate between the 28 songs and remember what happened in what song instead of it kind of blurring together. So yeah. uh, I, I like what I heard and I'm excited to go back and actually, you know, further explore this album, especially with all the, the uh, insight that you provided for it uh, today. So I have... Uh, a few reviews, and then uh, a couple questions to wrap up. So uh, Rolling Stone described the album's music as hooky rock that infuses songwriting smarts and a love of melody, like you mentioned, with a sometimes spiky, sometimes whimsical sense of experimentation. Then The Guardian gave the album a positive review, stating that Pollard's songs are gems that stay just the side of self-conscious eccentricity, and the song's lengths were just enough time for, for him to wheeze a few oblique lines and guitarist Tobin Sprout to trace out a raucous melody. A uh, couple more things. Pitchfork has the album in their top 100 albums of the 90s at number 27, and Magnet named it the best album of 1995. So that's that's everything I have for that album. Any any last thing you want to add before we we just the, the kind of the kind of you know he Pollard was his own Brian Eno. He he put the he made these records the, a song called Chicken Blows, which is a very Beatles kind of ballad, I guess. There's a there's a weird vibrato in his voice. It turns out someone is 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 pounding his back like this. So it goes chicken blows. That's the vibrato. Someone's pounding, karate chopping on his back like this. And then a, a I thought a, they added like a phaser or something going on. And then then a backing vocal comes in, and then it comes in really loud. And then they they just oh that's too loud. Let's turn it. And then it's almost gone. There there's there's a haphazardness to the mixing that just makes it all work somehow. It shouldn't, you shouldn't, you know, you could listen to this and go, this is a bad demo, but somehow it's not. It's again, like it's, it's, it's bringing you into this soundscape that, that no one, no one's been able to replicate, you know, and even with a full band, it, it, it always sounds, 
things are indistinct, but they sound great. You know, the the some you can hear the drummer losing tempo and it doesn't matter, just just like a like a 60s or 70s recording. I feel like all those little quirks are a part of what make the album endearing, you know, like that make it unique. Yeah. And it's just, but it's like I said, it's one fantastic song after after another. So I, I have one final comment sent here. So this is from Proleptic Thoughts on YouTube. Uh, he says, I've been a fan of Trouble Chargers since the 1990s and have seen them numerous times live. I've met Bill several times as well. Great group of guys. So that's the final comment that we have sent in here. And uh, maybe two more questions and then we'll wrap yep. up. Uh, is, is there an album that you love that would surprise our listeners? So you think maybe people look at you and, and with your choices, they're thinking, okay, he likes rock or he likes indie rock or he likes whatever. Is there any album that seems to be outside of your, your wheelhouse, maybe a guilty pleasure that you love that you can share? Uh, there's a Justin Bieber album in there. I know. Come on. Give no, us the good. Not. No, there's definitely <laughs> there's no, I, I like old pop music. Uh, that that kind of predates the album area uh, era. I I love I love the Carpenters. I love ABBA. Um, lately, I'm really into, and this is kind of like it's having a a moment in terms of of TV and movie placement of of over the top crooners from the '60s. Uh, the songs like. Uh, uh, a Man Without Love by Engelbert Humperdinck or uh, I Gotta Be Me by S Steve Lawrence, that kind of like over-the-top scenery-chewing kind of pop. I, I love that kind of, or really dramatic stuff. Uh, um, Dusty Springfield, things like that. Um, early, early, early Bee Gees, you know, way before Saturday Night Fever. I love sappy 60s stuff like that that's a, that's a good answer so we we have a tradition on the podcast where we ask the last guest to leave a question for the next guest without knowing who it is uh so in your case the last guest just two days ago i had an interview with tony ravelo of a bedouin sound clash and joy drop and his question for you is which non-musical places do you find inspiration from yeah, that one's pretty easy for me. It would be like the the uh, you know Sault Saint Marie is a is a is a steel town. Um, it's like any small town in North America. It's having lots of trouble with lots of things. It's got a really bad fentanyl problem, and uh, it's the middle class is is kind of dying and. Um, um, but if you drive anywhere for 20 minutes, you're in some of the most beautiful country in the world. So for me, the inspiration is the, 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 the rocks and the, and the white pines of the Canadian shield and, and being on the water. And, and, you know, that's all, if, if I, if I need to write lyrics, I'll, I'll go for a walk with a notepad and, and sit on a rock and look at trees and, and see what comes. Nature does it for you. Uh, now, can you, uh, pay it forward. Can you ask a question for the next guest? I don't even know who the next guest is. I, I just got back from vacation, so I got to book the next guest. Uh, any any uh, question you can put out there? 
yeah, my question would be, um, what do you do to try and take yourself out of your comfort zone? Uh, comfort zone. That's a good question. Perfect. All right. So where where can our listeners find you online if they if they want to stay up to date, if they want to see what you're up to, you know, if they're they're looking for that new new music that'll come out in the near future, maybe they want to send you a quick message saying they love the interview or they love your music. Where can they find uh, you online? Well, it's easy to find me on Facebook. I'm not very good at, uh, uh, but I'm probably going to be putting together some sort of Instagram or Facebook page for, for pointless. Um, as we get closer to the release of, of music, uh, like I say in June. Perfect. Last question. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say to your fans that have been with you since the very start of your music career through the different bands, through the different projects, still waiting? You know, they're still here waiting on new music because they love what you do. We heard all those comments from people saying you're their favorite artist of all time. You've put out some of their favorite music of all time. Uh, any words to those fans that have supported you? Uh, thanks for sticking with me. I plan to keep making music and um, um I mean, like I said, I don't write with fans in mind, but that doesn't mean they're not important because I'm I'm a fan myself, and I know how how special that that bond is. Um, so thanks thanks for your support, and uh, hope to see you in Toronto and Hamilton in June. Perfect. Well, Bill, thank you for the last two hours. I really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your five picks with me. I've added them to my playlist so I can keep listening to them and add them to my list of great albums that I check out every now and then. I really appreciate it. And uh, to our listeners, you know, the uh, the Bill fans, the Trouble Charger fans, thanks for sticking with us for the last two hours. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks, Joel. You're very welcome. If you've enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, like, comment, and share. What I want to know is who would you like me to sit down with next for a two-hour deep dive interview? You can let me know by reaching out to me on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at Joel Martin Mastery. Joel is J-O-E-L. And you can find me on Twitter and Snapchat at Joel Mastery. So I am done. I am complete. I approve this message and I'll see you on the next episode.